Cairo, Seattle. Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, award-winning food blogger and author of a New York Times best-selling cookbook, Deb Perlman. Deb is the woman behind the Smitten Kitchen blog and two cookbooks, the Smitten Kitchen cookbook and her newest book, Smitten Kitchen Every Day, triumphant and unfussy new favorites. The tagline of the blog is fearless cooking from a tiny kitchen in New York City. And Deb shares the recipe she cooks for her family, a husband and two kids. I think the reason that people are really attracted to Deb's blog is because she has this very warm writing style. She's very relatable. She's very unfussy. And her recipes work. But since her full-time job revolves around cooking and all her readers see are these lovely posed photographs... Some people make assumptions about what her life is like. Sometimes people build a picture where you're just like this domestic goddess. Yes. I'm not not a domestic goddess. Just the cooking. Yes. That's the only thing I like to do. I just like to cook. And I also don't cook three meals a day, you know, seven days a week at all. Like, we live in New York City. There's no reason to cook every night. So Deb is the human star of this episode. But our culinary star is the artichoke. And a particular type of Roman artichoke was the center of scandal and controversy a few months back. The story was splashed across the pages of international news outlets. And no, I'm not joking. Oh my gosh, it was a shock sent around Rome and the rest of Italy. That's Italian travel writer Susan Van Allen. She's going to fill us in on this scandal. But first, my interview with Deb Perlman. going to start with a small gush. Um, I really love you. And <laughs> and I've, yeah, I've used your cookbook more than any other cookbook. And I've made so many things. So I'm so excited to meet you. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, That means a lot because I've I always heard that most cookbooks, people just cook like two or three yeah. recipes from ever. Like that would be a lot for a cookbook. So if it's any more than that, thank you. <laughs> it is more than that. I go through every cookbook I have and I mark many things. So it looks like I've cooked from all of them because there's little paper <laughs> sticking out of the top, but mostly no. That's hilarious. <laughs> I have never considered doing that before. Now I'm going to, now I'm going to be questioning people when they come up with a really tabbed book. <laughs> this is pretty much the biggest compliment you could probably get as a recipe developer. Uh, but I've always likened Deb to Julia Child because both are fastidious recipe testers. I can tell that Deb is very detail oriented. She talks about how many times she tests a recipe and therefore, her recipes always work. Her golden thick-cut oven fries are a mainstay in my house. They are so delicious, you would never know that they weren't actually fried. And I'm a big fan of her recipe for spaghetti pangrattato. I don't know if I'm saying that right. With crispy eggs. This is a carb-on-carb, total comfort food dish. It's spaghetti tossed with capers and a bunch of good Parmesan cheese, and then topped with garlicky, lemony, herby toasted breadcrumbs and a crispy-edged olive oil fried egg. And then last winter, late at night, I was at somebody's house. Everybody had been drinking. We were having a dance party in the kitchen. It felt like, what is that movie? The Big Chill. It felt exactly like The Big Chill. And we were all hungry, and there was no restaurants nearby. And I was like, oh, I want to put together Deb's broccoli melt. There was practically nothing in the fridge, but there was broccoli and bread and cheese. So I was able to cobble together this smitten kitchen dish that the crowd went wild for, which is not hard to do when people are drunk but that's not the point. So thanks, Deb, for inadvertently feeding my drunk friends and me. 
Deb got into the food blogging game early, back in 2003. To put that into perspective, technology-wise, that's the year I got my first cell phone. But I was thinking about it, and that's also the year I got my first DVD player. So (laughs) I think I'm just kind of behind. Anyway, when Deb started her blog, she still had a day job. Talk about your journey into making it a career. Oh, my goodness. Um, I Okay, so I actually started blogging in 2003 when... They were very new. I was just bored and I thought I would just write some stuff. I had a lot of opinions. Life in New York, dating, whatever. I mean, it was 2003. You didn't have to have a a template. You didn't have to have a social media strategy. A brand. You didn't have a brand. You didn't have a handle. Um, everybody was anonymous. And so I did that and I thought I'd write about like dating or whatever because I was going on a lot of bad dates. But I actually met my husband within a month of there <laughs> that time. I just read recently, I don't know where, that you met your husband through your blog? Yeah, he left an early comment and we ended up like moving it to email and then we we went out for a drink and then we got married two years later. It's amazing. And and let's say you were still single now, 14 years after you started this blog, would you, do you think, get in touch with a commenter like you would have at the beginning? Would you have had the same trust? No, it was such a small world. You know, you had like maybe three commenters on your site, so you kind of knew them already yeah. and it was very new. What did he comment? What did he say? Oh my God, it was about a, it was about a dip. I was like, so here's, <laughs> it was so funny because it wasn't even a cooking blog, but I was like, here's this thing. You just take a can of white beans and you blend it with some cream cheese and roasted red peppers and then you serve it with pita chips. And he was like, oh, that sounds really good. How do you, like, or maybe he asked how to make it and I explained it and oh my goodness. I don't, it was like such a stupid thing, but for some reason, I don't know, he struck me as somebody with like a dry sense of humor and, you know, we went out for a drink and then, um, you know, I did that thing where I was like, I texted a friend. I'm like, you need to call me in an hour and tell me I have to come over or like, in, you know, 30 yes. minutes. And, um, and he did. And I kept ignoring the calls. <laughs> it's funny because Molly Weisenberg from Orangette, that blog, she also met her now ex-husband through her blog in the same way. I know. It's sort of wild how it happens. I think it was such a small world back then that it didn't seem that crazy. And honestly, I guess if somebody's reading your stuff, they kind of know what you're about. Like they're hearing something they like if they, you know, want to be, if they like somebody who can write or is articulate, it's sort of, you can kind of learn a lot, a lot more than you do from a dating profile. Okay. We got a little off topic there. So let's go back to learning how Deb turned her dating blog that she would write in her spare time into a food blog that became a full-on career. In 2006, I started the food blog part. There were food blogs out there, but they were very small. There weren't that many, and generally they were from chefs and stuff. But I found that I was just writing more and more about cooking and food and recipes I was trying and things I'd liked and things that didn't work, and I just wanted to fully focus on that. Um, And that was really it. I didn't think anyone was going to read it because I'm not a chef. I haven't been to cooking school. I've never worked at a restaurant. I'm not a, I had no food writing experience at all. So I just kind of assumed it was going to go off into the internet abyss like a million other blogs did in those years. And I'd go find something else to do with my life. But the opposite happened, I guess. Is that just word of mouth? People sharing it? I've always, did you do any marketing? I always wonder how certain blogs just got picked up and became huge. I actually never did any marketing. I think it was completely word of mouth. It was very organic growth, like steady, but slow. Um, And so, yeah, it just always grew. I never, I'm really bad at marketing. I hate advertising. I could never, I was never comfortable telling people to read my stuff. I will talk to people for two years before mentioning that I have a website like I just it will never come up if unless somebody like says I'm really into cooking I'll be like oh by the way I have this thing I think at this point most people know but I just it would never occur to me 
to mention it. It's amazing. And so can you make a living on a blog? I mean, it helps to manage your expectations of what a living is. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, you can. I mean, again, I, I got in early, so I had a lot of time to build up before like maybe there was an explosion. So I get to seem like an elder, which of course I hate. I'm like, can I be a younger? Um, um, but I um, I actually went full time with it in 2008. I didn't have an amazing job before that. I was working as a low level staff writer. So I... Um, it wasn't like I had to make up a, a lawyer salary, you know, to go break even. So, yeah, but I always I had ads on the site from early on. And I just kind of like, you know, once the traffic grew, the ad income grew and, you know, it hit a certain number. I felt like I was going to be pretty OK on my own. And then, of course, once I made it my job, you know, I was able to put more time into it and therefore it grew faster. Do you ever look back at some of the early ones and just cringe at your writing or your photography oh. or the recipe that you picked? I mean, the, the photography, I believe I always knew was terrible in the beginning. I actually think it's not that great now, but it's a little better. Um, the photography, definitely. I mean, especially because I was shooting after work in the evening, like with a flash. What, what are you going to do? You have a real job. So it's not like you're shooting in like midday light in a studio. Um, the writing, though, yes, of course. Do you know how hard life is when you're 26? We have so much more with Deb coming up, including her last meal, which we will get straight into after the break. Okie dokie, artichokey. <clears throat> that was foreshadowing. So let's talk about your last meal. What would you choose? <laughs> um, I'm not going to cook it. Just so you know, I mean, I love to cook, but this isn't this isn't the mode I'd be in for my last meal. Of course, I I love artichokes; they are my favorite food, and um, it's funny because on my side, I don't even cook them that much because I like them very plain and simple. And in general, my favorite thing is just to steam them. <laughs> but I've decided that I want I want an artichoke like trilogy kind of thing. I want to have them steamed the way my mom always made them, where you dip it in this mayo, lemon juice, salt, and pepper sauce, kind of like a Jersey aioli from New Jersey. Yeah. So, so is the sauce? Do you just mix lemon juice in with mayo and salt yeah, and pepper? That's okay, it. that's that it. Just season. It's so good. It's such a great simple dressing. So that's how we ate them growing up. Then I want to have it um, Romana style, where they're braised in olive oil with like garlic and everything else, and they're long cooked. Those are usually served room temperature or cold. And then is that just the hearts or the whole artichoke? It's usually a few leaves too, like the inner the hearts with some leaves attached, and they're usually you might see them as part of an antipasti spread, like you would see it with like the roasted red peppers and everything else. And then I want to have the the, the the real thing is um the Judea, the the fried ones, which are so, so amazing. They just take the whole artichoke and they kind of get it down to the heart and a few like fringy leaves and they, they deep fry it and it's salted. I love it with salt mm. and lemon. So I need all of that. And then I'm going to need some palm frites. I'm going to need some really good fries, like maybe cooked in duck fat. They have to be really well done, like nicely brown. No pale ones. This is the last meal. And then I'm like, I kind of want some salad with that. But that's just really, Deb, your last meal is going to have salad. But it just, you need the little green accent, a little, you know, a simple arugula salad. And then I want some really, really, really cold, really, really dry champagne. I mean, this is not time to buy the cheap stuff. I don't want maybe champagne or this was grown near Champagne, France. I want it to be <laughs> in champagne. <laughs> I want like actual champagne. And then I want for dessert, I want one of these. Um, I have the recipe on my site as Belgian brownie cakelets, but it's basically the perfect in between 
between a brownie and kind of a almost meringue lidded cake. Oh. Um, it's just it gets a little crispy on top, and then it kind of like sighs and dents a little bit as it cools. And then you in that depression, you could put a little dollop of cream and some berries, and it's just it's perfect. It's the perfect chocolate dessert. I like your last meal. There's something sophisticated with the artichokes, but also Very homey fancy. at the same time <laughs> and the champagne. Um, artichokes, the fried version, I've always wanted to make, but that to me is intimidating. Like, I don't understand how to trim them properly and then deep frying. It just seems, uh, somebody else just do it for me. I feel like when things involve a lot of deep frying, it's a good thing to outsource. It's not that you can't do it at home. It's just that it's tricky and it's hard to keep the oil temperature stable. And then you have all, you would just bought like a gallon of oil. And what are you going to do with it if you don't actually deep fry every day? I feel like it's the perfect thing to outsource. And also you can, I mean, I could totally prep the artichokes at home, but I've watched like old Roman men doing it on the street and they use these special tools um, to make it go really fast. They they were showing that they use this tool that's actually made for shoemakers. Like it's this sharp knife for cutting through leather to kind of, you know, turn it into a flower from like a big, anyway, to like whittle it down. And I just, I'm happy to outsource it. But my God, I hope I'm not cooking my own last meal. I love to cook, but that <laughs> doesn't sound. I don't know. I just feel like it would be really great if somebody brought it to you so you could actually like sit back and absorb the last moments of your life and not be, you know, worrying about grease splatters in the wall. The fried Roman artichoke dish that Deb is referring to is called Carciofi alla Giudia. Carciofi alla Giudia. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, and what does that translate to directly? Jewish artichokes. That is Italian travel writer Susan Van Allen, who's written many books on Italian travel, including 100 Places in Italy Every Woman Should Go. But today, she is our go-to lady for Jewish artichokes, or as it is called in Italian. Here we go. <clears throat> Carciofi alla Giudia. Oh, and I should mention that we had a little bit of Skype trouble partway through the interview, so bear with us. What is the dish? How is it prepared? And where did it come from? Okay. Uh, Carciofi alla Giudia is a specialty of Rome's Jewish ghetto. And it is made from a certain type of artichoke called the mamole, which is a beautiful, round, about a softball-shaped artichoke with purple-tinged tips on their leaves and very compact. And it is prepared very specifically by uh, women in the market, usually, who trim these artichokes down, take away all the rough outer leaves, and then it is flattened so that it looks like a, a flower, and it is deep fried once, seasoned, usually with a little salt and pepper, left to drain, and then deep fried again. So it appears on the plate like a beautiful golden flower, all crispy, and kind of a nutty, savory flavor, not at all oily when it's done right. And it is the most delicious revelation of artichoke tasting I've ever experienced in my life. Wow. Wow. Loving the time of artichokes. This is like a love affair with the dish. Uh, it's only in the spring, right? Because in Italy, they eat very seasonally, and that's when artichokes are grown. Uh, how did this become a dish that is a Jewish dish, specifically in the Roman ghetto? The history of Italian Judaism goes back to 70 AD, when the temple 
in Judea was conquered and um, Jewish slaves were brought to Rome. So the Jewish population in Rome is the longest enduring population of Judaism in the Western world. So Jews have lived in Rome since that time. Look at the Colosseum, thank the Jewish slaves who built it. Then in 1555, by papal decree, uh, there was an order for a Roman ghetto. So this section of Rome is near the Tiber River. It's about a four-block stretch where the Jews lived in a gated community from 1555 until 1870. And over that 300-year period, they were prohibited from a lot of cultural activities, art and music, but they could cook. And they developed a cuisine called Cucina Ebraico, Jewish cuisine. And a lot of it had to do with frying vegetables in oil, not butter, to obey kosher laws. And artichokes were growing all over the countryside. Uh, fabulous volcanic soil and you know, great place to grow artichokes. And so that became one of their signature dishes. Do you just eat it as it is, or is there some kind of dipping sauce? No, no, no. It just comes plain on a plate. And uh, it's beautiful to see when you go to the Roman ghetto and all the outdoor restaurants and these waiters balancing these, you know, salad plates of carciofi alla giudia. So Susan mentioned that the Roman Jews were cooking with olive oil rather than butter to ensure that the dishes were kosher. Jewish law says that you can't mix meat with dairy. So if you're kosher, that means you're never going to have a cheeseburger. You can't have a glass of milk with your chicken or your meatloaf. And if you cook with butter, that means there can't be any meat anywhere in the meal. So cooking with olive oil keeps a vegetarian dish neutral. And this brings us to a big news story from a few months ago. Well, I guess it's big in the Italian and Jewish culinary world. Back in April, Israel's chief rabbinate declared carciofi alla Judea to be non-kosher. He said small bugs and worms could crawl inside of the leaves and they could be eaten unknowingly. Kosher fact, insects are not kosher. This proclamation caused huge outrage, and I'm not joking, it really did, from the Roman restaurants who cook this beloved historical dish and from the Jews and non-Jews who love to eat it. It caused a huge explosion. I mean, how could he ban a dish that has been enjoyed here like I said, since the days of the ghettos for like 600 years and Roman restaurants, it was right before Passover, were getting ready to serve them. It was the peak of their spring carciofi alla Judea season. So they protested. They did say our Roman artichokes are different than the Israeli artichokes. They're much more tightly packed. Worms can't get in them. And they're very well cleaned by our fabulous women in the market and in the restaurants. And so they will not have parasites. And you just cannot take away this expression of our culture that has lived on for centuries. And actually, the Roman rabbi, Ricardo Di Segni, made a big video to begin Passover of him peeling the Roman artichoke to, to show people that it was okay. And in the 
big picture by Jewish law, the religion does not have a pope that can decree for all Jewish communities. All Jewish communities can decide on their own as far as these kind of kosher eating laws. And so it, it was not banned in Rome. So basically he made this decree and everyone got upset and then said, we're not listening to you. Yes, basically, that's what happened. It just could not, it just was impossible. I mean, if you go to Rome and this part of, of the historic center near the Tiber River during artichoke season, it's lined with artichoke towers, artichoke buffets. The celebration is in such full force. It's such a strong tradition. It could not be destroyed. The weirdest part to me is that the rabbi's decree came after he found a bug in a prepackaged, ready-made version of this dish. And so I was asking Susan, how do you sell, you know, a fried artichoke in a box? How does that work? And she said she's never heard of a prepackaged version. I couldn't find anything online. Uh, so for some reason, one bug in one package found by one rabbi stirred up a huge controversy. He is a drama queen. That's what I'm going to say about this rabbi. He is a drama queen of a rabbi. Luckily, nobody listened to him. So the Jewish artichokes of Rome can live on. And those who eat them can continue to be filled with lust. Susan says the artichoke has been praised as an aphrodisiac since ancient times. She says it was commonly eaten during Roman orgies. Now, I'm no expert on the subject, but I didn't think there would be much snacking going on. I guess you would work up an appetite. I'm just excited the phrase Roman orgy now exists on this podcast. Check. (laughs) All right, let's marinate on that over the break. And when we come back, more with Deb. Deb will share the recipe that got her kids to love salad. So if you're struggling with that, keep listening. And she talks about the pressure of making sure she brings the most delicious snack when it's her snack day at her kid's school, because all the teachers and parents know that she's the food lady. Deb Perlman cooks, writes about cooking, and takes pictures of the food that she's cooking for a living. And then she posts those pretty pictures of the fabulous dishes she's created on her blog for the entire world to see. And that can be intimidating for some, even the people that she sees every day in her own life. When you go to someone's house for dinner or you're making something for a potluck, do you have a pressure now because you've been at food blogging for 10 years and you're known (laughs) as a food lady? Are people afraid to cook for you? You know, it's funny. I have friends who have said that and I'm like, are you kidding me? There is nothing awesomer than somebody cooking you dinner. I have never gone to somebody's house or eaten food somewhere and been like, oh, this is not up to scrutiny. Home cooking is completely absolved of the rules that you would put for your own cooking or, you know, cooking at a restaurant. If you go to a restaurant, you're paying a lot of money for food and it comes out under season. You're like, oh, come on, what a racket, you know? But um, no, my God, I love it when other people make me dinner. Please make me dinner. (laughs) I love to save my energy for when I want to make dinner. Like it's such a luxury. I also feel like... um, I was thinking this like if like if you have little kids and you have like snack week at school and it's your turn to bring stuff in, I'm like, oh, they found out who I am, so I can't just Yeah, I you can't, can't just bring I can't pretzels. It in. I'm like, here's the pretzels. I know. Here's the pre cut fruit I got at Trader Joe's. I always feel like I have to bring it. <laughs> so what do you bring for snack day? I wanna come to snack day. I know. I kinda wanna come to I'll do um, you know, mini banana muffins with whole wheat flour. Um one time I made 
cheese straws, which were like, were like goldfish crackers. Um, not exactly health food, but we did it with grapes. So basically gave the kids a little wine and cheese kind of thing. <laughs> um, one time I did um, like a homemade lemonade with like Concord grapes. But um, yeah, no, I do feel like I can't just bring a bag of pretzels. They're watching you. They're watching me. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, they found out. <laughs> so what are some things that your kids really love that you make? Oh my goodness. Well, obviously pasta, pizza, and cake. Um, <laughs> Classic. Um, okay, so I have two kids. One of them is a pretty good eater. He likes the things that I make. So he, um, there's a kale Caesar salad in the new book where you do these, I call it crushed croutons. So it's like crunchy seasoned breadcrumbs and you sprinkle it with the cheese between the layers with the, you know, this really sharp dressing. I was surprised, but that turned both of my kids into salad eaters. Mm. They, they love it. And I'll make a jar of it now and just leave it in the fridge because it's very stable. Um, you can keep it. It's good for a month easily. They like worse chicken. My daughter likes eating it like a like a you like know. a caveman, yeah, like yeah, the whole totally egg, a yeah, caveman style, yeah. And uh, but so my daughter actually eats nothing though, so it's really funny. She's got like maybe two things that she'll eat, and I never know what they are from a day to day basis. So when I'm talking about kids eating, I'm really just talking about my son. It's really unclear <laughs> how my daughter has survived this long. <laughs> she's alive though. Uh, she's she's healthy. I mean, she seems to be growing. <laughs> so the thing I like about your recipes are that they really work, and so I get the impression that you try recipes many times. What do you do with all that food? Don't you get sick of the same dish when you've tried it several times? So the thing that's not always clear on the site is like, let's say I'm working on a potato dish and I hate the way it came out. I just take my notes and I, you know, jot down as much as I can and I write down why it failed. And then I don't come back to it for a while. I'm not like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday eating potatoes until I want to like never see it a, a potato again. I'm usually doing it over, you know, oh, let's try the potato thing again next week. Or sometimes it is two years. I will table things indefinitely. I'm always just working on the next version of something I tried to do a while ago or something new and it's the first version. So that's the savory. The savory stuff is usually dinner. The sweet stuff, I have to get out of my apartment. Like I, everyone loves dessert. I'd like to have, you know, if I make a cake, let's make sure we have four slices at home. And then my husband can take it to work or the babysitter can take it or we take it to school. I really don't have any need for a um, major layer cake. On, uh, you know, sitting around my apartment. That's just not going to go well. I'm going to be like, nah, I'm not going to eat, you know, kale salad for lunch. I'll just have a wedge of cake. I'm not going to make good decisions. But um, I wouldn't really just be making a layer cake just just to do it. I think in general. you're not June Cleaver. <laughs> I'm not June Cleaver. I would usually be making it because it's somebody's birthday. Maybe I'll work on it for a couple days before. Or, oh my goodness, there's this huge party cake section in the book where we did actually have to do a lot of baking because I wanted to get one shot with like 14 variations on this these cake recipes in it. And I took them all and I spent hours boxing them up. And then I brought them all up to my publishers who were working very late trying to put the book together. And uh, much better to bring it to an office. People are so happy to have any format of homemade cake. And that was Deb Perlman's last meal. Deb's latest book is called Smitten Kitchen Every Day, Triumphant and Unfussy New Favorites. Her first book is called The Smitten Kitchen Cookbook. I encourage you to buy one or both of her books at your favorite neighborhood bookstore. Or you can just check out the recipes on our blog at smittenkitchen.com. Thanks to the extremely lovely Susan Van Allen. I truly love speaking with her. She positively charmed me with her Italian accent. I love the pastas, the macchiana, carbonara, cacio pepe. 
and the panna cotta and the torta di nona, the gelato, of course. Fantastic. I love hearing you pronounce all these words with your beautiful accent. <laughs> it sounds so good. I, like, I would rather, like, overdo it so that like, we kind of get it. Otherwise, it sounds snobby. I know, I know, I know. I, know. I, lo- I love rolling the arms because it gets you into the spirit of it. And, and you're not seeing me, but I'm also I'm moving my hands. You can find Susan's books and her articles on Italy at SusanVanAllen.com, which is also where you can sign up for one of the women-only trips that she leads through her beloved Italy. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram. I'm at Your Last Meal Podcast. And if you have an idea for the show or a comment, send me a message. I respond to every single message, which sometimes surprises people. This morning, I was on uh, a Seattle food talk show called Seattle Kitchen, and this woman in the audience ran up to me and said, Rachel, I sent you an email a few months ago, and you responded, and I was so surprised that you respond. I'm like, yeah, that's what we do. It's polite. I respond to the email. So send me one, and I will respond to you as well. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, and you like it, leave a review on iTunes. It only takes a hot minute, and it really does make a difference. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason and me, theme music by Prom Queen. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. Mamma mia. Buongiorno. Spaghetti. Tortellini. <laughs>